Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming here. You know, I know many of you got up early and you might be up late, so I'm very thankful that you chose to be here with us today. Let me make sure I've got all my audio stuff and visual stuff on. This is always an adventure, you know. Anyways, so as many of you know, it's not a surprise that today is the last day of 2023. For those procrastinators out there, if you haven't started in any of your 2023 resolutions yet, this is your moment to shine, right? This is what you live for all year, right? You got less than 12 hours or so, let's go for it. If you're like many, like me, many, most, of the new, most New Year's Eves, I look back and reflect on the past year. This helps me to put together a list of resolutions for the upcoming year. I think of things that I want to do better, I, start, I want to start doing, I want to exercise more, eat better, lose some weight, pray more, read the Bible more, you kind of get the picture. In most cases, I've inched towards some of these resolutions, and in many situations, I've slid further away. I found this meme funny, and I think it describes um, this, you know, it says, I set a goal to lose 20 pounds this year, I'm doing great, I'm only 25 pounds to go, you know? How many of you could associate with that, right, you know? We end up falling behind our New Year's resolutions rather than getting ahead. The truth is, the resolutions I approach with enthusiasm on January 1st are usually euthanized by the first day of spring. Even knowing that they will end in failure doesn't stop me from making them. I want to start today and this year by taking a more scientific approach to my New Year's resolution. So I went on the interweb and did some research, and according to YouGov.com, these are the top six things that appear in people's resolutions. So, so to explain it a little bit is that they sur surveyed a thousand people, and these are the things that appeared on every one of everyone's survey, okay? And so you can see that be more happy, 22% of the people that surveyed said they wanted to be more happy in 2024. 21 said they wanted to exercise more. You know, 21 said improve, you know, physically, their physical health. Some said eat healthier, improve your mental health, lose weight. You know, I was actually kind of surprised at that top resolution. You know, be happy only appeared on 22% of the resolutions for those who were surveyed. Again, this was up 5% last year when it was only 17%. Apparently, 78% of those surveys don't want to be more happy in 2024. <laughs> I asked, are they already too happy, maybe? You know, maybe they, they can't go up anymore? Or have they given up being happy? Which may tie into a statistic that was also on that site that said 71% of the people 65 and older don't make any New Year's resolutions. I don't know if it's coincidence or what, but anyways. For a Christian, common lists that we see or make, we pray more, we want to read the Bible through, study the Bible more, love my family more, be a better employee, take better care of myself physically, maybe evangelize more. At first glance, besides physical health, the list looks completely different, wouldn't you agree? 
But as you look at them more closely, I believe both are identical. Because I believe the underlying theme of both lists of these resolutions is guilt. I need to do more good. I need to do less bad things. If I could be bold and say that I could sum up both lists with a single resolution would be find peace in who we are. Because the opposite of guilt is peace. We can't have peace in the world, our nation, or our families until we find peace in our hearts, right? Instead of finding peace in our hearts, we make lists of things that we think will get us to this elusive peace. Because the assumption is, if we accomplish all of our resolutions, we will somehow find peace. The reality is, even if I did accomplish all of my resolutions, I wouldn't be closer to the peace than when I started on January 1st of that year. Because peace isn't found by minimizing guilt. We won't find peace by trying to sin less. I believe the gospel verses that Sally read in Luke are a key to finding the peace we all desire. I believe true peace can found, be found by being obedient, by patience, and by perseverance. I will start with obedience since Mary and Joseph were the first one in the verses. So they followed Jewish law to go to the temple for the rite of purification. Their obedience brought them to the temple where they met Simon, Simeon, who we'll talk about in just a bit. I think when we, all, we would all agree that we are following the rules, our sin or guilt is reduced. For example, on my way home from here today, if I look in my rearview mirror and see a police car behind me, of course, without the lights on, the first thing I do is check my speed while at the same time relieving the pressure on the gas pedal. My right foot sins a lot. <laughs> Obeying the speed limit doesn't result in negative consequences, and as a result, my guilt is minimized. And we can experience brief moments of peace. In Mary and Joseph's obedience, they met Simeon, who after his prayer, Luke writes, marveled at what Simeon had said. I had never thought that obedience could lead to marvel. But then I went and I looked back and I remembered when I used to take my kids to camp. We were in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a few miles south of the Canadian border. There was no cell service and no electricity for the light. So when the sun went down, the lack of light pollution allowed for the brilliance of the stars in the night sky to shine. I marveled at God's creation and I was filled with peace because I realized that God was in control. Obedience in God leads to peace. The second way to peace is patience. How many of us, when we put a place in our GPS, try to beat it? Raise your hands, probably everyone here, yeah, okay. It's kind of a goal. So it's kind of a fun example of impatience, but impatience, like not obeying, could lead to regret and guilt which short-circuits our peace. How many of us wish we would have been more attentive and patient with our kids when they were younger, when they were telling a story and in our heads, instead of marveling at their creativity, we were hoping they would wrap it up faster because we had things to do. We were trying to beat the estimated time God had carved out for that interaction. 
The impatience of telling them over and over and them not seeming to get it. Maybe we lashed out in frustrations because we had better things to do. We all have moments where our lack of patience has resulted in guilt. Don't we wish we all had the patience of Simeon? The verses tell us that, he was, that it was revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord Christ. The verses don't tell us how old Simeon was, but it's implied that he was older and had been waiting a long time. The verses say that he came in the Spirit into the temple. When he did, he saw Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus amongst all the other families. He went directly to them, took the baby Jesus, and said a blessing. I'm trying to put myself in Mary and Joseph's place. I'm fairly sure it wasn't common for strangers to come up and take a baby and hold it, and then follow it with a blessing. But it's the blessing that really was weird. He starts the blessing by saying, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. It's clear that after the encounter with Jesus, Simeon was at peace. I can also understand that he may have gotten his wish to depart in peace shortly after handing Jesus back to Mary and Joseph. You take away a newborn baby from their mother and you do take your life into your own hands. But Simeon's patience brought him peace. says it right there in the scripture. The last thing I believe that leads to peace is perseverance. The verses say Anna was advanced in years. It said that she lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Actually, through my readings, it says that she was a widow from 84. The King James Version says she was a widow for 84 years. So if you do the math, well, again, well, first of all, I know as a guy you should never ask a woman her age, but this is sure a sure way of never achieving peace if you do ask them, right? But this has to be the strangest way to explain a person's age, especially when Ruth wrote, she lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Was that how they measured wedding anniversaries back then? Imagine the anniversary cards. Instead of happy anniversary, would the greeting cards read, happy years since being a virgin? You're probably thinking, well, that's a little silly thought. They didn't have greeting cards back then, right? Anyway, when you do the math, a woman was typically married in that time around 15 years of age. You had the seven years that she was married and another 84 years of being a widow. So Anna would have been about 105 or 106 years old. That is an advanced age. So if you think you're too old to do God's work, talk to Anna. Anna preserved through the death of her husband and 84 years of being a widow. Those last 84 years she spent in the temple fasting, worshiping, and praying daily. She had no idea that on that specific day, Mary and Joseph would bring Jesus to the temple. But at the same time that Simeon was blessing Jesus, Anna thanked God and began to speak of him to all of who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What's amazing about the story is, from what I read, Anna was in a different part of the temple court. She wasn't near Simeon, Mary, Joseph, or Jesus. Her perseverance led to fulfillment. Fulfillment can also be described as contentment. So perseverance does bring peace. When looking at these verses, I realized that, that God 
was there in the temple. Jesus was there. And the Holy Spirit was brought in by Simeon. They were all present that day. Just like they will be in heaven when we arrive. Heaven was a place on earth that day. In 1987, Belinda Carlisle had a hit song, Heaven is a Place on Earth. I'm not going to sing this song for you because there isn't enough mimosas in the world that will make me sound good doing it. In a way, I agree with Belinda, though, but I would modify the song title slightly. Instead of Heaven is a Place on Earth, my version would be called Heaven is a Place in My Heart. Because, like the temple courts, this is the place where God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit exist. Peace doesn't start in the brain, it starts in the heart. You may be also wondering why prayer wasn't included in the list of three. Well, I've been taught when making a persuasive argument, you should limit yourself to three major points. Prayer would have been the fourth point, and according to the public speaking gurus, this is forbidden. Actually, the real reason I didn't include prayer as an additional point was I believe the prayer was present in Mary and Joseph's obedience, Simeon's patience, and Anna's perseverance. To be obedient, to be patient, and to persevere, your life has to be bathed in prayer. If peace is what we're truly searching for, and obedience and patience and perseverance are needed for peace, what is the formula for finding peace? I'm a scientist, and I'm in an SMP program, which is kind of a volatile mix, so. In my mind, when I think of a formula, my mind goes to equations, and I travel back in time to my first semester of college calculus. I'll pause while you take a sip of your mimosas, because we're gonna do some math. If you indulge me for a few minutes, I hopefully will be able to teach you some calculus. If that was on your list of 2023 resolutions, you can check that off today. My thesis on peace is that peace equals obedience plus patience and perseverance to the power of prayer. But we know there's sin in the world. So our peace is affected by how sin reduces our happiness. Sin and peace are inversely proportional. So as sin increases, peace decreases. But we know that Jesus is greater than sin, right? So there's a trick in calculus. You multiply each side by a constant, or one, which is Jesus, the one. So when you look at Jesus times peace, on the other side we put Jesus. What happens next is Jesus cancels out sin, and in the denominator we have one, or the one, and Jesus is equal to affinity. And when you look at this, affinity of peace, or ultimate peace is what I would say, is this formula. But I want to take it one step further, because infinity of peace is ultimate peace. And ultimate peace is found with this formula in my mind. So as I wait back for the Nobel Peace Prize to come my way and get the call, (laughs) No, seriously, um, it's actually a simple equation. But in our world, a world ruled by sin, sin is a variable and would go in the denominator of this equation. Because we are prolific sinners, 
we place, or say replace, Jesus in the denominator with ourselves. So we only get moments of the ultimate peace he offers. If we want everlasting peace in our lives, family, nation, and world, we need to start making sure the king that was laid in the manger is present in our hearts. This is really the only solution to the equation of everlasting peace. You have a choice. You could try to find peace by trying to reduce sin in your lives. Or you can cancel out sin with the blood Jesus shed on the cross. The math doesn't lie. Do you want ultimate peace? The formula is actually simple, but it isn't easy. Following Jesus isn't easy. It requires obedience, patience, and perseverance to the power of prayer. But isn't it worth it? Isn't everlasting peace worth this equation? If you bow your heads and pray. Lord Jesus, your peace is out there. And none of our resolutions and making ourselves better or doing anything will help us get closer to you. We know that you are the reason and we need to put you in the equation. So help us this year make one resolution that we will keep is helping you to replace our guilt and sin with your blood. It's in your name we pray.